So this morning, I, I want to talk about uh, what I just read about, which is the, mind, the fact that we have the mind of Christ. We have what Paul's talking about here after talking about the folly that the cross seems to the world is the true wisdom, the true wisdom of God. And um, I'm going to look at it sort of in, in three points, what, it, what it's not, what it is, and how we can have it. What it's not, what it is, and how we can have it. In other words, what it's not, the wisdom of this age. The, the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of this age. Secondly, God's hidden wisdom in Christ and in the cross. And thirdly, the mind of Christ. How do we access it? What do we do with it? How do we live? What does it make our lives look like? What, what marks us? So let's start out with what it's not, the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age, Paul says, it, it, it vaunts power. The cross did not look like power. The cross looked like the opposite of power. Again, Messiah was to be, according to almost every expectation, like the most powerful king we can think of, to, to squish his enemies, not to be squished, to destroy the geopolitical opposition of God's people, the Romans, etc. But Christ, in a sense, was undone on the cross. It seemed like a complete failure. Um, but the wisdom of this age completely missed that because it looks to power. It looks to sheen, it looks to shine, it looks to appearances, it looks to grab what it can. So Paul talks in verses six, seven, and eight over and again about the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age. He talks about that a number of times. It's a leading word in these few verses here. Um, and this, this age, he says, it's the old age that's come from Adam when Adam rebelled um, against God and he represents us all. If we're, we're all connected in a family tree, we all come from two parents, Adam and Eve. And so we're all, in a sense, one human organism, and we are represented in them. And all creation was given, they were given charge of all that God had made. And because they fell, they severed themselves off from the trunk of the tree of life and died and immediately started a process of, of decomposition, body and soul. Everything that was given to them in their charge cracked and began to be corrupted. And so Paul just characterizes that as this age, as this age. And he says that it's corrupt, that it sees and tries to seize power and it worships power um, and the things that, uh, that claim to be powerful. And so um, because of that, Jesus was not the conquering king that they expected. So he was not accepted. On the contrary, he was rejected. That's proof that, um, that this world totally missed God's wisdom, is what Paul says. That they crucified the Son of God who came to save them. They crucified the Lord of glory. But in his wisdom, and we'll get to this, God uses that because he planned it before the foundation of the earth. He uses that in his wisdom to save those who will look to Christ. So um, I want to say that the rulers, one of the things Paul seems to be saying here clearly, the rulers of this age, this age, the power players in this age, the way we operate is we will always, as it were, crucify Christ. We will always be enemies of the living God, and we will always crucify Christ. Anyone who threatens, as Christ did, our perceived autonomy, me being king, me being able to sit on the throne of my life and to call the shots, I am going to crucify. And Christ comes, and he says, if any man wants to follow me, he has to pick up his cross, die to himself, follow me. You're not worthy if you, if you put your hand to the plow and look back to anything else. Um. Author Tom Wright, he puts it this way. He says, thus as my teacher, Professor George Caird, used to say, the highest religion 
and the best government that the world has ever had ever seen got together to execute the Lord of glory. And that's sort of a, a fusion of the, the fact that Jesus came to his own people to whom the oracles of God had been given, Romans 9 and elsewhere. They, they had the only light there was. God had, spe- had signaled, had Uh, carved them out as a special people for his own possession and given them his very word and pledged himself to them. And yet, the power players, they ended up crucifying him, lauding him one week and then turning against him the next. And also it's a fusion because the Roman system was the best legal, military, judicial, political system that had really ever come about. And it ended up also being in collusion with the Jews and crucifying. So there's a sense in which all world power stands against God and condemns itself. All worldly wisdom will always crucify Christ. And and what, what else does Paul say? He says, not just that, not only will it be opposed to God, but it's doomed to pass away. That's the thing. It seems like that's the train to get on. That's the ticket. That's where I wanna go. That's the house I want to build. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. What does Paul say? He says that's, that's not what we see is usually not what is real. And actually, the real state of this, the rulers of this age and the kingdoms they are building and their opposition to God is that they will all pass away. They are doomed to pass away. Christ came and he, he inaugurated a new age as the second man or the second Adam and only what is in him will remain. Started small, but it's gonna grow into a mountain. And we'll get to Daniel too. That's out of, a prophecy out of Daniel. It's gonna grow into a mountain that will fill the whole earth while all the worldly empires and glitz fades away and passes away. And notice he says, he didn't say it will pass away. He said it's in the process. It's doomed to pass away. It's in the process of passing away. It's sort of like when Adam and Eve were told, if you disobey me, if you eat from this tree, If you eat from this tree, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will die, die in the Hebrew. Well, a lot of people say, well, they didn't die. They took a bite and they didn't drop dead. Actually, the process of death had begun in them. It's like when you cut a limb off of a tree and it falls to the ground, it's dead. It's still got a lot of life in it. And Adam had the very breath of God in him. Took a while for it to go out, about 950 years. But eventually, his soul was dead dead as a doornail at the moment that he turned from the living God. How can you turn from life and have life in you? How can you turn from life and not be dead? That's exactly what happened to our parents. And whatever happens inside produces the result on the outside. You see, because spirit precedes matter. It's primary too, not more important than, because God loves the body. He became enfleshed. The incarnation is the ultimate sort of trumpeting of God's value of matter. He will always be a man. God loves stuff. He made stuff. But in the day that they were cut off from God through their rebellion, the process of death took over. And, and that's what Paul's saying about this age, no matter how great it seems, no matter how great it seems, um, it's passing away. It's happening now. It's like a dandelion uh, that's blown. You know, my, my kids picked a couple yesterday and they were fighting over, you know, who got, who got one. And we're fighting over weeds here, people, you know. Uh, this is a good illustration of what we do, right? I guess that wasn't even in the script, but it's a great illustration of what we do when we compete for worldly power rather than when we envy 
as Paul goes on to say in the first verses of this next pericope in chapter three, when we envy and there's dissension among us and we try to grab, do power grabs for ourselves, we're doing the opposite of God's wisdom, the opposite of the wisdom of the cross. And so that's just gonna be, it's gonna end up just like a dandelion that's had, had all of its little seedlets, you know, blown to the wind or like, or like something that's a house that's burned down to just cinder. Um, it's just gonna be ash. But, as I said, there is another age to come, and we're getting into God's hidden wisdom here, point two. There's another age to come, and it's already come. It's, 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 it came with the coming of Christ, the second Adam. God entering this world in the flesh and doing something that Adam was supposed to do but didn't, and being our second and better representative, obeying God from the heart, taking our sin penalty upon himself. And Daniel, um, so he brings into this corrupt age, another age that will never pass away, and it starts small. How small does it start? It starts so small that it starts with a guy, one guy who enters the darkness, Jesus, and he ends up getting buried in the ground after dying on a Roman cross and going to hell for us. That's very small. So is an acorn when it dies in the ground, but it has within it the potential to reforest the planet, doesn't it? It produces as it grows many thousands of acorns and they and so on and so on. You remember your exponential math. This is the age to come. This is the age that Christ has brought to bear and it goes out like a fist on water through suffering, through pain largely, through persecution. Man, if you, if you feel like you're going through a meat grinder right now as a child of God, God is bringing the age as you let go and let Christ do what he will through you. The economy of the cross is working its power through you. He is establishing his age, which will never end. And Daniel prophesies about that in Daniel 2. And he says, he says, all these worldly powers, he's talking about Persia, he's talking about Greece, he's talking about the Medes, he's talking about the Romans. We could substitute, we could say, continue to go on the British Empire, China, America, and so on. These worldly empires, they are so impressive, they're like a big statue in the middle of this plain. It's full of, it's composed of these various precious metals. And God's age, his ruler who's gonna come is super unimpressive, like a little stone, uncut, rough, not impressive. And he smashes the feet, the feet, the foundation of this statue. And it ends up, all the worldly powers end up over time because of this stone getting blown away like ash in the wind or like a dandelion. But this stone, what does it do? It grows into a mountain that what? Fills the earth. Can I just say, if you need sort of good, good evidence, I said sort of because I was gonna say proof, but if you need good evidence of the fact that what Paul is saying is true, just think about world history for a second starting from even before Christ, if you wanna go all the way back to the Medes and the Persians, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians. Do we, are any of those empires, have any of those empires remained? Some of them have lasted, but have any of them had world dominance? No, they've all, in a sense, passed away or are passing away. Every single one I mentioned, and the ones now, America and China, we can see ourselves passing away, can we not? If you have any, any sort of political connection, any sort of insight at all, and if you've studied history at all, you know we're on the downslope. I'm not being fatalistic. The history of America is a history of revivals. It's one of the reasons I moved from law school to preach the gospel, and I'm not, and I, law is a, law is a 
noble profession. My grandfather was a lawyer. It wasn't for me, but that's one of the reasons that God, I feel, called me out because, look, what is the only thing that has remained through all those things? The thing that was a stone that has ended up becoming truly a mountain and is filling the earth. The kingdom of God in Christ continues through persecution largely to grow and to expand. Um, and all other worldly empires will fail. So that is the wisdom of this age. Uh, but God's hidden wisdom, it was hidden in Christ. And what does Paul say here? He said, God decreed this before the ages. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, verse seven, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. They didn't, they didn't understand this, so they crucified him. He is the crux. Christ is the crux of all this wisdom. He is the incarnation of it. He is the consummation of it. And, um, but Paul says, actually, God decreed that all this would certainly come to pass. His wisdom would find fruition in Christ before he made anything at all. It wasn't like he had a, he, man sinned and then world empires started to shake their fists at them and then he started to wrung his hands and got, we gotta come up with a plan here, Trinity. That's not, Paul says the opposite, actually. We could go to a lot of verses. We could trace this throughout the Old Testament. Let me just go, let me just take you one place. Genesis 3.15. In short, in the middle of the curse, right after Adam and Eve disobey God, he's made everything perfect. He's rested. He's given them charge over everything. Then they disobey him at the tree. And the curse just permeates their souls and their bodies and spreads everywhere all at once. And now everything is under this process of disintegration and being doomed to pass away. And God doesn't throw his hands up or, sw or wipe everything clean and start over or just say, forget about it, I'm done. That was a nice seven days. He doesn't say that. He actually seeks them out through questioning and he addresses the uh, man first and then he addresses the woman and then he addresses the serpent and then he comes out again, watch this, it's a Hebrew, some people call it a ring structure. A man first, woman, serpent. And then he goes out again to the woman, and then he goes out again to the man where he finishes. So the man's out here, the woman's closer, and the bullseye of the ring structure is what? This, this talk to the serpent. It's the hot center of what? The curse. The curse that man has brought on creation and on himself. And God enters it with a word of promise. He doesn't wring his hands or fly away from it, he enters it. He enters the hot curse himself with his word, and he says, enmity, we get in enemy from that word. He starts, the first word in a Hebrew sentence has emphasis. It's not the first word in most English translations, but in the Hebrew it says, enmity will I place between the serpent and the woman, and between her seed or progeny or children and his, Satan's, okay? A lot here, but one of the things is, what will characterize, there will be two races, that's it. There will be two races or two ages, you could say it a lot of different ways, in this world, moving forward from that point. God's children, the seed of the woman, and Satan's children, everyone else, okay? And God will make them enemies, and that those rails will shoot throughout the rest of world history, certainly leading to Messiah and going out from him, and they will provide us with a structure around which to see, and that's the way the Bible goes. Enemy, God's children and everyone that's opposed to him, Satan's children. There's no sort of third party. And God is the one who makes them enemies and, and choreographs all that. He's not, he's not hands up in the air wondering, oh no, what's gonna happen? Man sinned. He is orchestrating it all, not the author of it, 
but he is choreographing it, inserting his own word of hope in the middle of this curse and saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to place, I'm going to make enemies between the woman and the Satan and her seed, her children, and his seed. And then what? The word of promise. The word of promise comes in the next line. He says, um, he, the son of the woman, he, uh, excuse me, that Satan will crush, the serpent and his progeny will crush the son of the woman's heel. So he's going to do, the serpent's going to do some serious damage to this son, this seed who's going to reverse the curse. He's going to bite him on the heel, just like a snake. If a snake bites you, it's probably going to be on the heel, right? But, but that seed of the woman will crush the serpent's what? Head. Done. He'll finish the serpent once for all. And how does that work? He does it with the very thing that he's struck with. So the, the, the seed of the woman is struck on the heel by the serpent. The very place in which he's struck, you usually will kill a snake. You'll crush its head with what? Not your hand, your heel. At the cross, the very place where this seed of the woman was struck, his heel was struck at the cross. He dealt through death the death blow to Satan, to sin, to hell, to death. This is the wisdom of God. And it's prophesied in the middle of the curse. God only has one plan, plan A for us, and it was always, always going to be in Christ, the better Adam. Okay? So what does God's wisdom look like? If you look at verse 9, Paul quotes here um, from, uh, it's a pastiche, it's from a, a bunch of different scholars there's, there's no one verse this is from, so he's sort of connecting a bunch of Old Testament truth, but it's at least from a couple verses in Isaiah, and one of them is Isaiah 52, 14, and it says this, as many were astonished at you, this is 700 years before Jesus, it's a prophecy, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Who's it talking about? Jesus. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Being covered in the blood of Christ makes us not dirty but clean. He died in our place. So, he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut. Look, and he, many nations, he is, the, he is the one who brings to bear the promises given to Abraham. Many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I never knew God would do that through a crucified man. I never knew Messiah was gonna come and do that. I shut my mouth in wonder. For that which has been told them they see and that which they have not, excuse me, that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And then what is that? It's the very end of chapter 52 leading to probably the one place in the Old Testament that most clearly delineates the Messiah and the, the fact that he is going to sacrifice himself as a substitute for us. Isaiah 53, next verse. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom is the arm of the Lord? been revealed. What is the arm of the Lord? His power. How is he going to save us? This Isaiah 53 suffering servant, this one who would actually be lashed and beaten and crucified and endure hell and become sin in our place so we wouldn't have to and raise us up to life into a new age that will never end, that will fill the earth like a mountain. What does God's arm look like? What does his power look like? What, what does his wisdom look like? It looks cruciform. It looks like the cross. And as I get into the mind of Christ, point three, um, it's all about accessing through faith 
the work and person of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, being deposited into us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very mind of Christ. That's what Paul talks about. So this third point is like pure application. So we're gonna land the plane with that. Just sit with me for a few minutes. God is a person. He's three persons. He's, he's multi-personal. He's tri-personal. He's richer than simply one person, and we in his image are personal beings. Um, only God as a person knows God. And Paul says, look, you, only the spirit of man knows what's inside of that man. It, we're deep. The heart of man is the deep waters, one proverb says. Deep, deep waters. You can be smiling but actually sad on the inside. Only you know this. And Paul says the same thing is true of God times a zillion. He's multi-personal. He is infinite. He is, he is so deep and so holy. Our sin problem prevents us from knowing him at all, certainly his deep things. And yet, through the work of Christ, by the Spirit, Paul says, the deep things, the bathos in the Greek, the, deep, the depths of the living God have been he has opened himself fully to us in Christ, have been revealed to us, have been placed inside of us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Bathos, the depths, it's like the same word used in the depths of the ocean, the ocean depths. Can you, hey, one scholar, again, Tom Wright says, this is astonishing. We kind of pass over it because we read it and that's what we do when we read, we pass over things. But what the depths of God himself have been given us through the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is where we dwell. You wanna know the secret to life? This is it. This is where we dwell forever. You cannot get beyond the depths of God. What is salvation? It's knowing God himself. And, and he must, if, we, if, he, if I'm gonna reveal the depths of myself to you, I have to reveal myself to you. I have to open up. That times a zillion with God. We can't presume, certainly because of our sin, but also because of our infinitude, to know God. He must choose to reveal himself to us, and in Christ he has in Christ alone, he has, and he gives any who trust in Christ, his full spirit. The spirit is not given in measure, John 3.30. Not given in measure. The depths of the living God. The bathos. Um, to know and to be known and still to be loved. To be fully known and to know someone fully and to be still loved, accepted, and cherished. This is our heart's desire. This is what we're made for. This is what every country song is about. Why it never gets old. It's what every good film, every good rom-com, every good film, period, tends to be about. Every fairy tale. To be fully known, and my fear is when I'm fully known, I'm not gonna be loved because I'm not lovely, truly. But the gospel is that God fully knows you and comes all the way down to get you. Takes your sin upon himself and makes you lovely as you look to him and offers reciprocally all of himself to you. To know God, to be fully known by God, and still to be loved, and to be made like him more and more. This is, this is what every fairy tale is about, and this is, the, this is the baseline of all that is real. This is the point of life that Paul is giving us here. He's showing to us. And our maker apparently knows that we were made for this because, because this is what, Paul is saying he does. He's in the business in Christ. It's why Christ came, of revealing his very, everything about himself to us and then knowing everything about us, Romans 8, 27, okay? The Spirit also searches the depths of the human heart and his depths he gives to us in Christ. So seeking to be lastingly and satisfied, guys, 
I just want to say, before I say this, I am very guilty here. I am very guilty of this, so I know that a lot of you are as well. It's the broken human condition. Seeking to be lastingly and satisfyingly known and loved in or by anything else, a person, a thing, where if we're honest, we're going after these things every day to seek this validation, to seek to be fully known and fully loved and validated by anything else is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's making a good thing an ultimate thing. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, never, never pin your whole faith on any human being. Guilty. Not if he is the best and wisest in the whole world. Get this, there are lots of nice things you can do with sand, but do not try to build a house on it. Any pursuit of anything for soul satisfaction, for identity outside of God and Christ is building your house on sand. Not my words, not Lewis's words, Jesus' words in Matthew 7 at the end of his great sermon. Lewis goes on, only block quote, stay with me, it's worth it. And now we begin to see what it is the New Testament's always talking about. It talks about Christians being born again. It talks about them putting on Christ, about Christ being formed in us, about our coming to have, quote, the mind of Christ. That's our text. Put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out as Uh, A man may read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. It means that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers or listening to a sermon or at work or at home, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you're saying your prayers is doing things to you. Not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It's a living man, still as much a man as you and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has, at first only for moments, then for longer periods, finally turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity, being invited in to the bathos of God, the fullness of his depth. This is what Christ brings us into by his spirit. It's God in us, not just speaking to us, but empowering us as well and changing us. We often think about imitation when we're in this life, and then we like imitating Christ, like the uh, WWJD bracelets, if you're somewhat old like I am, and you remember those WWJD, I used to wear my mission trips and stuff, and then we'd bring it home and you'd wear it for the next year until it got all nasty and your mom make you cut it off. Remember that? The WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's good insofar as it goes, but it's not enough. The imitation, what would he do? I'm gonna try to do the same thing. A lot of my prayers, especially in the past, but even, even now, and I have to catch myself, and maybe you can catch me and I can catch you in the future. Um, I say to God, either out loud or to my, in, in silently, Lord, uh, um, I just kind of think I need to love that person more. And look, knowing what Christ has called us to as new creations and, and doing things that we know are right, dying to self and doing what we don't want to do, uh, what we, uh, putting the flesh aside and saying, I really wanna sit here and be selfish right now, but I know serving this person is what Christ would do. Acting in the face of our feelings is often the way towards sanctification. It pleases God, but it's not enough just to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna muscle up and do this thing. Rather, change your prayer. Do it, but also change your prayer to, Lord, help me love as you love. 
Lord, give me your love. You are in me. Lord, help me to love the Father as you do, Jesus. Jesus, help me, uh, Father, help me to love the Son as you do. Help me to love that person in front of me. I, I don't have it in me, in my flesh. Crucify that, and your love for them that laid down your life, come in me and work through me. May I be a conduit of your love, and in, as such, may you transform me into more and more into your likeness. Lord, that, that person that I wanna lust after in whatever way or envy, I can't not do that. Help me. Help is a great prayer. Help me. Give me your eyes for that woman or that man. Give me your love for that woman or that man. We have the fullness of God in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's, let's let that be our unspoken and spoken prayer more and more and more. Um, Christianity is not just a set of beliefs and a rule book for life. It is that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. The heart of the Christian faith is the title of the J.I. Packer book, Knowing God. The classic for a reason. The heart of a new life in Christ is knowing God and being known by him and then making him known. That's kind of it. That's it. It's this personal, personal, intimate, beautiful relationship that he's brought us into. And everything else is sort of trickle down. Trickle down economics. Trickle down living once that's in place. Okay? Um, I was in a I was in a panel on, on hell this week. I know, it sounds delightful. Um, it, it, was a, it was a panel on heaven and hell, but mainly hell, because no one, no one has any questions about heaven. They all think they're going there, right? But it was really about hell. And they asked us at the end of the, the time, they said, what, um, what do you think heaven's gonna be like? What's gonna be most precious to you? And I think the best answer that was given, and the truest, yes, it's gonna be the, you know, Augustine said, no good thing will not remain. It's gonna be physical, it's gonna be food on the table, feasting, being with your friends and family and those that you love, your family in Christ, uh, sunsets, adventuring, exploration, government, good government, that's almost become a, a bad word now, but trustworthy government where things run and people are honest, and so on and so forth. But more than any of that, and at the center of all that, what? There's a king who still has a body and still has marks, as Paul said earlier, in his hand and in his side and in his ankles. But he's, he's this God, man, this Jesus, this Messiah who laid his life down for us and took it up again. And he's holding all things together. And we're gonna get to see him, be with him, talk to him, have our tears produced here, down here, through suffering and pain and loss and privation, wiped away tenderly by the God who made us. It's gonna mean, it's probably gonna mean, man, when I, sometimes I'm, okay, I hope this is, this is recorded so I'm in trouble, but sometimes when my kids get hurt, I'm almost happy. I know that sounds really sadistic, but because the sweetness of taking them on my knee and comforting them is, is so sweet, and I wouldn't have that if they hadn't gotten hurt. This is the picture that we're given in Revelation 25 where Christ takes us to himself and he wipes away. He does away with all that's caused pain on this earth, okay? He redeems it. He, it's almost better that we had experienced it, and through our pain and suffering, he is building his kingdom, and he's bringing his age to bear, okay? That kind of tenderness, being with the God who made us, knowing him and being known, this is, this is what it's gonna be like. And that doesn't, we don't have to wait for that. It's not gonna come fully until he returns, but man, that's what this life is all about. And that's how his power is gonna go forth through you and change you and change those around you. That's it, that's it. I think there's more, but I'm going to close with that. Um, let me just quote G.K. Chesterton and then give a few 
brief application points and we're out. Um, we'll celebrate communion together. Chesterton, I just want you to know, friend, you might be sitting there going, man, I long after all these things. I just want you to know that all those longings and those things you're grabbing for are only going to be met through God in Christ. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said very colorfully as he does, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Let me add, even if he doesn't know he is. Everything you're searching after that you feel like I can find satisfaction in that thing, let it be an arrow pointing you to God in Christ. Let it be a pathway leading you to the desire that shall be fulfilled in him alone. This is what Paul is giving us a picture of. Nothing else is gonna satisfy. It's all castles of sand. It's all cinder that's gonna get blown away. But the, the stone of Christ, God's wisdom, will fill this earth and uh, it will last forever. So let me briefly just say, so work, how's that gonna play out at work? Look to serve rather than self-promote. It's all about self-promotion in most workplaces. You feel like you've got to have people see you doing things and, and get, grab your own stuff to get ahead. But actually what Paul's saying here is look to serve cruciform wisdom rather than self-promote. Always be honest, always work hard for God and not man because he's looking and he knows and it's gonna make a difference. Even if you get fired, he's still gonna build that mountain. It's still gonna fill the earth and it's gonna last. I don't care if you get promoted to number one in your company. If you're doing it for you and grabbing gusto and doing it according to worldly wisdom, it's gonna get smashed and blown to bits. It's gonna be gone. It'll be all for naught, zero. Doomed to pass away. Don't do it. Christ is your king. Marriage, don't look to serve, same sort of thing. Don't look to be, <laughs> I just said that. <laughs> is this being recorded? Um, my wife's not here. Um, she's, in, she's in kids serving your kids and mine. Um, marriage, don't look to be served. That's, I hate to say it, but that's usually what I'm doing in this relationship. I mainly am looking to be served. Rather, switch the paradigm. Try to outdo each other. Make it a competition, right? I mean, I, I'm such a guy to say that, but try to outserve one another. Don't wait until you've been served enough according to your own expectations, because guess what? That will never be enough. It never, it's never, it's a losing game. It never works. They've never served me as much as I think I'm serving them, right? So just forget about it. Know that Christ has served you infinitely and go and give yourself to them. No strings attached. And that becomes something that creates a new environment. A new environment. The, the lights are switched on. Cruciform wisdom. Parenting. Rather than saying, they are so much work, they're so needy, they're driving me insane, I want to pull my hair out, which you can still say that. I mean, you know, 5.30 comes, you know, at the end of every day, and my wife's like, ah, and when, when she was at the women's retreat, and I had them for three days, they're delightful, but man, they're, they're a lot of work, and so that's okay, but rather than having that be the paradigm, switch it. Keller, Tim Keller, his anecdote about having to punt your life for 25 years when you have kids. <laughs> I remember I, I heard that before I had kids and I went, I'm not sure I want to do this. But rather than looking at that, looking at that and th thinking worldly wisdom, I'm not going to be able to get mine. Rather, it fits right in with cruciform wisdom. It's a chance to serve, to invest in them, to, wet, you know, to wipe their snotty noses and their dirty butts and to love them and to get on their level and to be humble and to have people constantly in your lives who are asking for things, really good at receiving, really good at asking, and who don't care about the fact that you're the CEO, that's humbling and that's really good. That's what God is using as a tool to produce his cruciform wisdom in you. Um, so, so look at that as it making you more like Christ and he's building his kingdom through you. And lastly, singleness, not grasping for completion by looking to someone else to fulfill us, but rather being filled up in the bathos of God, knowing that you were made for him and only he's gonna satisfy. 
And then as you're running toward God and serving and loving the world and doing your thing, chances are you're gonna catch someone's attention. I'm not saying you will, but that's really attractive. Not being dismissive, I don't need that person. Being attentive and careful and loving and gentle and graceful, but being totally filled up. I don't, I don't need you to be, I don't have hungry eyes. I'm not hot on your trail, that's scary. Man, when you have, I can't speak for the ladies, I'm not a lady, I can speak for the men. When, when you see a woman who's filled with grace, who's, who's not dismissive, who's attentive, who's loving, who's graceful, but doesn't need you, bro, that's attractive. So, um, and that's only from Christ. That's only something Christ and his cruciform wisdom can produce. Um, two types of people, that's it. Those animated by the spirit of the world and those animated by the spirit of God. Two races, those in the first Adam and those in the second Adam. The Adam means man, Jesus. Two ages, one doomed to pass away and one that will never end. Let's be people of the latter and let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for babies. I thank you so much for adults of all shapes and sizes. I thank you for loving all of them. Um, for giving your life for all sorts, for every nation, tribe, and tongue, uh, women, children, men, um, Lord of all sorts, you love all of them, and you showed it through uh, the incarnation, your life, Jesus, your death on a cross, you're taking hell for us, you're becoming sin for us. Um, I pray that cruciform wisdom would find its way down, down, down into the depths of this body and that it would transform us and draw us near, near, near to you. Lord, forgive us for seeking our satisfaction in anything else. It's building on, a, on, a, on sand. May we build on you, on your rock, for you are the rock that will fill this entire earth. And nothing done for you will ever go to waste. We bless you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.